podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Hey, happy Thursday morning. Today, we're going to talk about a topic we talk about often here, which is financial freedom and specifically how finances relate to the freedom of time and mobility and a bunch of different things coming together to inspire this episode. The first is there's a new feature on Airbnb or that they're emphasizing this year called long stays. Well, back in 2014, Airbnb launched a new feature called Book Now, and I had at the time used it to book a place for a few weeks in Rome. And I was just sort of marveling at, man, this like used to take weeks to get something like this done. And now I can come to this website and for an affordable price, essentially achieve a permanent traveler lifestyle. You used to have to leverage hotels to do that, which were super expensive. Now, all of a sudden, there's this new platform that enables this new lifestyle. And so I wrote a whole blog post about it, which really touched a nerve with listeners. It was written in 2014. And it was called, What is the Real Cost of the Permanent Travel Lifestyle? In it, I created some universal characters around the different types of people I've seen in my travels, like the exiled expat, the business class traveler, and so on. And these are really inspired by you know key technologies that come along, like Skype and Airbnb. And these characters go from you know the digital bohemian, hustling and having fun in places like Ho Chi Minh or Medellin all the way up to mega yacht, multiple home, wealthy folks that might traditionally fall into a permanent traveler persona. So kind of on the heels of all this, what I decided to do was invite friend of the show, Jesse Schoberg on to get his take on concepts of lifestyle ladder, financial freedom, and what the permanent-ish traveler looks like today and what kinds of cash you need to make and to start achieving it. And we're talking to Jesse because he's lived at so many levels of that life, most recently spending many years living permanently in fantastic Airbnbs all around the world. I really do believe in this trend that Airbnb is going to continue to increase their inventory and cater more to this lifestyle. But before we get underway, some Cliff's notes, producer Jane said that I had to mention in order for some of the following to make sense. The first is that I wrote a book called Before the Exit, which is available on Amazon. I can send you a free copy too if you email me. And some of the ideas in today's episodes are referenced in that book. We'll also be talking about FIRE, which stands for Financially Independent Retire Early. Typically, this is a community who aims to, quote, retire by their mid to late 30s by using the 4% rule, which basically means stashing enough cash and saving really effectively to live off of the interest for the rest of your life. So with that, let's jump right into it. I'm Jesse Schoberg and I started Drop and Blog and I live location independently. Jesse, I thought what we'd do today is revisit the concept of the lifestyle ladder with a third party being you and see how you relate to the concepts now a few years after they were written down and see how much they still or don't apply. Also, maybe do some cross-referencing with an old TMBA gem called, what is the real cost of the permanent travel lifestyle? And I determined in that article, these different levels of like sort of the exiled expat, the baseliner, 
the permanent traveler? Like what levels, you know, of income or what levels of expenditure? That's sort of different, like your cash flow expenditure in order to achieve a certain lifestyle versus, you know, your net worth, which is what the lifestyle ladder is focused on. The basic idea of the lifestyle ladder is simply this, that levels of money or personal net worth, buying power, however you want to frame it up, they don't behave linearly. And this is important. It's something you hear like when people talk about savings and compounding wealth and investments and stuff, but it's also important as you take a look at the value of the assets you're creating that if, for example, Jesse, if you have $0 and I give you $50,000, that is a life-changing sum of money for anybody. But if you have 50000 and someone gives you 50 more thousand, not as much. And that effect is why it is important to take a look at these different levels of the lifestyle ladder, because often we're building an asset for sale that, you know, that value to you will depend a lot on where you're at in the lifestyle ladder. And as a personal anecdote, I ultimately regretted selling our last business because I just didn't get enough money for it relative to my personal lifestyle ladder. It didn't change my life enough to sell such a powerful asset, in other words. And this is a very, very common situation for entrepreneurs. So I think it's worth us revisiting this important concept, the lifestyle ladder. Let's do it. All right, Jesse. So I'm going to read for you the different levels of my lifestyle ladder rung and see what you think of them. So the first one is in debt. And in debt is like sort of a financial epoch that so many Americans find themselves in. In fact, one generational trend I've been seeing is that a lot of people my age, I'm about 40 years old, Jesse, we came out of college with you know, a lot of a zero debt if your parents paid for you, but if you paid for your own college, you might have somewhere between like twenty to $50,000 in student loans. That would be a very common figure. And then you start to chip away and like have extreme anxiety about that all through your 20s because you don't make any money and you can't go out with your friends and you're trying to pay it down. Well, now this next generation of 30-year-olds call it, I'm seeing them have more like six figures of college debt, oftentimes with degrees that you'll never make six figures with. (laughs) So that anxiety, particularly in America, of being in debt is increasing, and I think more and more of us find ourselves there. I know multiple people that are our age that did go even to fancy schools and got degrees that you would think make good money that are still holding quite a bit of that debt. And that's confusing. It seems very counterintuitive to the concept, right? And so that's the school thing. But I think that the other thing with the in debt and holding your lifestyle is just, yeah, the average person who doesn't make that great of a living and they end up treating themselves with their credit card that causes that debt and that eventually starts to snowball. And, you know, the stats are bad. If you look at the average household net balance sheet is like minus XK, right? So that's what's painful. So I think, yeah, the first step here, right, is to to try to make sure that you can figure out a way to make a little more money so that you can get ahead of that to get you out of that stress. Because it's always a constant life stress if you're just running negative forever. 100%. And the sad catch 22 here is that if you are feeling responsible to servicing debt or holding debt, then you might be less likely to go on the entrepreneurial journey, which might be the very thing that could actually solve the problem in a way that would be resounding. 
I think that's the thing is like, if what you want is this multi-million dollar retirement, you know, say by age 60 or whatever, and it's going to need to be more, right? And so if you spend your first decade of earning, ministering to debt instead of getting that snowball rolling, what the entrepreneurial path promises is potentially you could put inputs in that have an asymmetric return. I mean, I think about it in the case of my particular situation. I wasn't a high earner in my career for very long at all before I basically quit and made no money. So my personal income was like 40,000, 40,000, 40,000. And all of a sudden I'm making multiple six figures. And that's not an uncommon outcome, you know, if you're very serious about the business of growing businesses. And I do think that something that you've mentioned before, but I think is important. A lot of people think that the way that they achieve this is by spending less and by slapping it in the 401k and, and this kind of thing. But I think that the real solution for this is always to figure out how to earn more. You can get rich a lot easier by earning more than you can by spending less. And I think that that's obviously the promotion of the entrepreneurial lifestyle, which is where you can potentially earn a much exponentially higher amount of money than at your regular job. But I think that that gets missed a lot. And we see that a lot, I think, in the fire community, which I think that we have a lot of mindsets in common with. But I feel like that's where we differ a bit is that it's always just like, well, just get as good of a paying job as you can and then don't spend anything in your 20s and 30s. And my thought is, I want to enjoy my 20s and 30s and my 40s and 50s and 60s. But the way to get to that path, I think, is often missed by just scrimping and saving and suffering. And I think what you should be doing is suffering with your time a bit and focusing on that side hustle, even maybe while you have the job, so that you can actually get that real income change, which will help you pay off that debt faster and and acquire real wealth and, and income and all of these things we're talking about. The other thing is like that mindset too can cause you to be a penny wise pound foolish. And the pound foolish part might be at minimum investing in books and educational materials, coaches, advisors, mentors, employees, assistants, coders. And it's tough when you don't have any money, when you're servicing debt. Well, how would you build an alliance like this? Well, there's a lot of ways to do it, right? You can raise money. You can raise capital. You can find business partners. You can pre-sell. There's a bunch of strategies that I think can be tough to really adopt if you're in this fixed world of like salary and expenses. And like, that's reality. That's kind of maybe what's behind my like distaste about all the talk and a lot of the talk in the fire community where I diverge the most is like this reality that you're projecting into the future for the next 15 years. Like your intuition about how the world works isn't true. But if you have it, that's how things are going to go until something disrupts it that you didn't anticipate. And so why not leverage it? If the world's going to come by and have a tsunami wave crash on your plans every couple years or whatever, call it global pandemic or illness in the family or lost your job or whatever that is, why not leverage the positive side too, which is open yourself up to millions coming in? Yeah. And I mean, on one hand, I'll say that we're a bit of the survivor bias. But on the other hand, I feel like the reason that we are that survivor bias is because we put in that time. Most people that you know that put in the time, they come out favorable on the other side. The other thing now, Jesse, is that like the framework for thinking through this has changed dramatically with 
digital nomadism, remote work, and now the pandemic, the opportunity to basically organize a very entrepreneurial career has never been higher. And this idea that, you know, oh, well, I could become SVP and increase, you know, my income, net income by 20,000 bucks a year, or I could buy a plane ticket and do the exact same thing right now. That's huge. With less stress, less responsibility. And so this idea that you can become in-house hustler and organize a profitable career that opens you up to upside opportunities to meet the types of people at your career where you're going to become a partner, an owner, an equity holder someday in the next decade. It's never been greater. So it's an exciting time for everybody, I think, in terms of like building careers. What an incredible product this week. This episode is brought to you by Service Provider Pro, an agency dashboard and client portal software for productized services. Can you believe it? You know we're huge on productized services around here. This product is designed for those of you who run them at scale. So if you want to scale up your agency, you need a system for handling clients, payments, and projects. Service Provider Pro gives you that system together with a white-labeled client portal that makes your agency look professional, saves your clients time, and serves as a central source of truth for your team. Service Provider Pro is trusted by many TMBA listeners, including seven-figure agencies. This is a solution made specifically for selling and delivering your services at scale. So check them out. Check it out over at spp.co to learn more how it works. That's spp.co. All right. So we're talking about this lifestyle ladder idea, and we're still in the broke category, which I think is I have a ton of experience with. I could stay in this category all episode long. When you finally do pay off that debt, service that debt, you just become broke. And broke is a hell of a lot better than being in debt. This is <laughs> what I always say when, when meeting people from some of the developing countries who are, quote, poor. I always say, well, actually, no, you're broke. There's a difference. Your balance sheet is better than most of those, quote, rich Americans or Europeans that come and visit your country and you think that they're doing so much better than you. It's like, actually, no, you have a great opportunity because you're actually one rung up above them and and you just don't realize it yet. So being broke is actually a much bigger freedom than than having that debt because now the world is yours. You're not indebted to any of these larger entities that are holding you back from making bigger moves. All right. So Jesse, now we're going to start to get into the meat of like how we might value our businesses and like when we would sell out of, you know, a project we built or a business we built, because these are levels of income in your bank account that, you know, are going to make a potential real difference. And so for me, I would say like between 10 and 20 grand is like when I stopped feeling broke, you know, this is where you have an emergency fund you're not going to have like huge cash crunches. You're not going to be rolling down to the pawn shop or the payday loan place because you know you had a, a bad sales week or whatever. It's a big moment when you have that cushion because especially if you are on the entrepreneurial path, which hopefully you are by that point, and you, you get to the point where you are able to have that cushion, that's when you're okay. If the, the whatever hustle you're doing doesn't work out next month, you're not back to zero and getting a job. You have enough cushion that you can float for a couple of months and get that next client or pivot the business a little bit or refine things and that kind of stuff. And, and that brings a huge weight off the shoulder that you're not worried about 
paying rent next month and you're also not worried about switching from broke back to in debt and starting the cycle over and trying to get back up the ladder. So that's a very freeing moment. And I've been in that moment a couple of times in my life (laughs) and uh, every time it feels great. You know, your goal wasn't to get the basic savings. Your goal was to get to wealthy. That's why we're having this episode. That's where we're heading. And so there are transitions when you're broke and you have to move your lease ends or whatever. You're not hiring movers. You don't have the deposit for your next place. Now you got to get other people involved or whatever. That whole process could take two to three to four weeks. And when we're talking about creating asymmetric outcomes in your financial life over the course of a three to four year sprint, Having to take a month off to move a bunch of atoms, you know, beds and couches and stuff you don't need. Yeah, to, to a different place. That's unacceptable in my mind. If if you're trying to change your station in life and having that 10 to 20 grand in the bank account can allow you to pay for services like that so that you can stay focused keeping that guitar in your hand, so to speak. Or let's call it what it is. It's your your MacBook on your desk. Yeah, I think that's one more pitch of the how valuable it is to do that currency arbitrage early in your entrepreneurial career. If you're at that point where you got 10, 20 grand in the bank and you've got some level of working income, if you move to a cheaper country now, when business gets a little unstable, which it will, because you probably won't have some genius business that makes a hundred grand a month, your first try. Now you've got six months or a year worth of living expenses in case shit. Versus in the States, maybe you've got one, two, three months, depending on which city you're in. That's a big, big difference from pushing you off your mountain that you're climbing and dropping you back two rungs in the lifestyle ladder. Yeah. And I think the maybe we'll take a little segue here to talk about that jumping off point. Like at which point in the lifestyle ladder do you jump off? There's no fast rule of thumb, but there's one classic scenario that I want to point to that was mine. And one that I see on the road all the time, essentially this, that you had a career in tech and you have like $150,000 a year skill set. So that means not only do you understand a key technology that grows a business, but you can probably like manage relationships in such a way that they're highly professional, aka you got some sales chops or high level operational chops or something like that. When you jump, it's harder to make that income because now you're not going to the office every day. And so I would say your income might reduce by like, let's call it a third of that. So, so you're now you're making 50 grand. Yep. That's very accurate, I think. And you're living in a developing country with a hot spot for entrepreneurship. Call it, you know, Thailand, South America, you know, Eastern Europe, whatever. You kind of got to ask yourself, like, what's the game plan? Why am I doing this? Who am I surrounding myself? Like, what's my asset? How good am I really? What's my level of ambition and, and focus or whatever? I've noticed, Jesse, that a lot of people just stay there. They just stay making 50, 75 grand a year and it's fine, you know, or whatever. Maybe it's not fine. Maybe someday they say, well, I wish I would have stayed and at least built equity in a home, you know, and like stayed in that main economy rather than downside, whatever. But I think it's worth pointing out that this is like a a band that happens quite regularly. Like I lived in major city with a major tech salary. Now I'm making a third and I'm, you know, my lifestyle has temporarily improved. I manage a lot more of my time. The question is, are you going to apply that time in the correct directions? Or are you just going to enjoy the lifestyle and then maybe not be able to sort of graduate back up to that first world city if you ever wanted to? 
And that's a key differentiation between the entrepreneurs who really want to change their life and the people that actually just want to work for someone else and live a normal life, no matter where that is. It's the guy who makes 150 grand a year in the States and is kind of in the machine definitely does not have as great of a life as someone who's making $50,000 a year, but from their own entrepreneurial ventures in some of these other places. If you're still leaning on that regular job that's coming from the homeland, it's still hard to make the jump. You still need to put in the effort and you still need to put in the time. You still need to have that vision to get you where you're going and look for that growth that you're talking about that can be exponential. One of the uh, arbitrages that's a little bit less common in our community as we're more marketing focused, but that fire discusses quite a bit. That's such a sweet spot right now. It's like, learn to code, go work at a great company. They'll teach you to code, live in New York or whatever, make a couple hundred grand a year, and then just move to Portugal and just take a huge pay cut and you're going to live a, like a queen. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. <laughs> for sure. You have that skill set of just pumping out some like high level code for like world-class startups, but just doing it from somewhere affordable. That's a, an amazing arbitrage. That's like just there for the taking right now. And it's so much bigger now that because of COVID, all of a sudden people realize that you can actually do these jobs remotely. A lot of people aren't even needing to take pay cuts. And the the ones that are, it's great leverage because company wants to keep you. Obviously, if you say, hey, I can work for half. Can I do the same job and work for half? And then no one can ever take my job and I actually have job stability. If you like that life and that's good for you, there's a lot of options right now for that. And then, yeah, you can play that arbitrage and come out pretty far ahead. Let's talk about getting far ahead. What's the next level? So we talked about the basic savings level. I surmise that the next level that felt substantially different was what I was calling a financial platform. And that was when you have six figures in your personal bank account and you have the engine that's created it. So you own the asset. And that's typically what's going to happen on your entrepreneurial journey. As you build a business that gets traction, you know, you're paying other people for years, but eventually you're going to start to, to make excess profits and they're going to find their way ideally into your personal bank account. So when you have six figures in savings and you have the engine that grew it, that's that kind of next level that happens three to seven years into your entrepreneurial journey after you've gotten out of that incredible period of focus where now you're sort of back to where you started in a way, but you own an asset and you own your time. That's a huge one. And I think, yeah, we see that very regularly, right? With our people in the DC and, and just entrepreneurs around the world is, I think that that's a, a pretty, a common place that people get to if they put in the time. You throw in that thousand day rule and, and just putting in a lot of effort. There's, there's a lot of people that they make a good income. They've replaced whatever they were making at their regular job. They now actually have real money in the bank. They've cleared their debt. And a lot of people just stay in this forever. And that's kind of okay. You can live a very great life and better than the average person with the average job when you're in this position. Most people don't have six figures in net worth that's not in a house and have money coming in every month from their thing that they created that allows them to create their own time schedule of life. And it's a very important place to be. In. And I think that most people are in this, some version of this until they make the big jump to the next one, which is where it gets tricky. And this, I think, is where a lot of people think they're going to jump to the next level when they sell their business. 
and then they don't sell it for enough. And then they realize, actually, I'm still in this level. <laughs> <laughs> not, not to name any names or anything. This financial platform is such a powerful place to be in. And, you know, it's often where, we've, where you're in for a lot of your entrepreneurial journey and you can get antsy. Because, again, there's this counterintuitive element to the lifestyle ladder. The counterintuitive nature of all this is why I think the FIRE community is a lot they have, they have like a lot better brand appeal than the entrepreneurship community because like they're leveraging the intuition and the need for certainty. I think a little bit dubiously. The reality is you might have to hang out here for a long, long time before anything good happens. It might feel like forever, like two years feels like a long time when, you know, you're dealing with like challenges of your business, right? That feels like forever. That's what's so great about it too, that it does feel like life's long when you're doing this stuff, right? Rather than when you check into a job, that, that those months can just melt away. Point in the lifestyle ladder, the financial platform is, this could be 20 years. There's a big difference between having that kind of money in the bank and the, the retirement level. But the difference, and this is what makes the entrepreneurial community, in my opinion, so much better than the fire community, is this level is fantastic. You live a great life you're still running your business. You're not just doing nothing and, and have complete freedom of everything in your time, but you're running a business you like, you're making money, you've got plenty of excess cash, you've got money in the bank if you want to do anything larger or make larger purchases or start another business or invest in something. This is a great place to be versus the fire community. You're still like, I hope I can live on only 20% of my income so that I can make sure I put it all away for another 10 years and then then I can have some fun. Your limitations are essentially your own making. I mean, that's kind of the reason we're calling this level the financial platform. A lot of people don't feel comfortable with it. All of a sudden, there's not something I should be doing here. Like, I should just be enjoying, like, standing on the platform, like, seeing what happens. Like, that is like some people feel a lot more comfortable with at least, like, I'm just trying to make enough money to pay the rent and to, like, not have a job. There's at least some structure there. At this point, now we're out in La La Land. You can you can go to any kind of get any kind of executive coach. You can get a GM, and this is like part of you know when I wrote my book about this topic, I tried to talk about some of the positives that like hey, this is a platform. Think about all the things that this brings into your life. When you, for example, meet new people. The fact that you have a team of people working for you that wear your t-shirt that like have these interesting value and resources to others, that's so much different when you're networking than when you just are a person with money in the bank. It's a massive, massive opportunity. But yeah, this is where we see also most entrepreneurs have existential life crises. Because yeah, now, now you're standing on the platform, you got money coming in, no one's telling you what to do. You're like, oh, okay, what am I supposed to do? Versus that your life is just busy with all this stuff that you don't really think about and you don't have time to think about it. And that's where people get a little freaked out because they don't know what they want to do with their life and have a little trouble grappling with the, the privilege that they've created for themselves. And you know, you need to take the time to zoom out and figure out what do I want to do with my life? Where do I want to spend my time? Oh, I guess I do want to learn salsa. I guess I, I do want to hire that guy. Like, Try to think back when you started all this about why, why did you actually want to get rich, right? Like now it's time to start doing some of that stuff because even though you are working on your project and you're still grinding and trying to win, you also have a lot of freedom there. And 
as we said, you're going to be there for a while. There's usually a pretty a distance between the financial platform and where we're going after this. You know, maybe I didn't anticipate this before we started talking on this topic, Jesse, but we could really talk about the psychological challenges of essentially achieving your dreams for a very, very long time. Like my dream, and I think a lot of our dreams, was this idea of a financial platform. You know, I wasn't thinking so big as to, you know, settle financial questions for a lifetime, which is the next level. At this level was my dream. I want to make good money while owning my own time and like ultimately have a successful retirement and not do it in like a standard career gold watch, live in one place script. When you achieve that, all different weird things can happen. I mean, one is that you can become resentful of your business because you still have responsibilities, right? And owning a business that pays you hundreds of thousands of dollars a year is a big responsibility. For sure. There's no two ways about that. But you got into the game in the first place because you didn't want responsibilities, <laughs> man. You know, you wanted to be free from those or whatever. And so there is this growing process where I think this is a wonderful phase to really knuckle down and ask yourself, like, you know, being of service to an organization, to employees, to a purpose, to a customer set is an enormous gift and a privilege too. And so something for us freedom seekers to remember that if you find yourself in the situation where you're feeling a bit resentful, part of the reason I wrote the book is to talk about every sword cuts two ways kind of thing. And so there's a lot of positives about having a financial platform, even though it is a great deal of responsibility. And the other thing that I'll add there is I think that a lot of people, once they get there and then they get used to it, and then that resent comes and then you know, like you guys, you get bored with your business and you think, ah, I don't really know where to take it from here and this kind of thing. What I'll remind a lot of people is that getting to that point is actually very hard. I think a lot of people kid themselves and they think that they're geniuses and can just start million dollar businesses in six months because they did it once. And I think that a lot of that is timing and everyone doesn't hit the timing every time. I know a lot of people that have had one big exit or started one big company that, that did really well, that had good timing, that's been printing them cash for 10 years. And literally every other thing they've tried has pretty much not done much of anything. Yes. I definitely relate to your sentiments in, in your book in that fact that, no, it's actually quite hard to build something that's very stable and very successful. It can definitely be done. And we've all done it and met lots of people who have done it. But just instantly repeating that next week, I think is a lot harder than, than people think. So yeah, think twice before A, you hate on what you built because it's awesome. And B, before you think that, oh, I'm just going to sell this, not have enough money to ride off into the sunset. And I'm just instantly going to be able to make something amazing. No, you're going to be back to the grinding. It's a lot harder to get back from zero to 10K a month than it is to get from 100K to 150K a month or whatever your thing is. So those are the rose-colored glasses, Jesse. And a, an important point that was uh, Jason Eckenroth actually pointed out to me, he said, as entrepreneurs, we look back on our personal heroic journeys as having built this amazing thing and built it up from scratch and like one customer after another. And, and we think about us having that success, but we forget that the process was actually just screwing up all the time, having tons and tons of failures. And then ultimately getting lucky with one, hitting the timing with one. And yeah, you put all those skill set after you found the luck or whatever. And in my case, you know, I think about 60 failed projects and three that were good. 
that's probably the ratio. Yeah, I think that's super, super common. And I think even we all forget that. And when I see people running out the door for an exit of a million bucks and they think, oh, this is, I'm all set. I'm just going to build up another thing and sell it for a million or three next year. That doesn't usually happen every time. So, And socially, it can be difficult too. You could have found yourself socially committed to circumstances where you need to be more consistent, right? And so to go then be a serial failure again, which is how a lot of us started our businesses by failing a lot, that can be really tough, like midlife, mid-career, mid-responsibility. And so something to keep in mind, if you're going to sell your business for less than the freedom line, which is the next level of the lifestyle ladder. This is ultimately the punchline of why the lifestyle ladder is being written, because in the entrepreneurial journey, essentially acquirers, brokers, everybody in the industry more or less understands the psychology of the situation a lot better than you. But what you need to understand as the entrepreneur is the mechanics of your own personal situation, which is to say, what is the amount of money that will shelve financial questions for a lifetime for you? And that's the freedom line. And the importance of it is that the business that you own is probably what's going to get you there. So now if you sell that business before you get to your freedom line, what are you going to do? You're still back at the platform angsty stage, but now you got to start all over like you referenced earlier, Jesse. And that is the key takeaway and the key lesson of this episode. And it's also something that will people will try to exploit in you, right? So in the case of my business, I'll just be transparent about it. Like I got to see a million dollars in my bank account. And that was a psychological level that was important to me. The industry knew that about people like me, but it did not change. I can't retire on that million dollars in my bank account, right? So the biggest thing that happens there is you've switched from cash flow to cash pile which is very, very scary because now you got a million bucks in the bank. You think I'm Mr. Entrepreneur. I crushed it. I'm quote rich now. When I was a kid, everyone said, then you're a millionaire and you've made it. But then you realize you don't have money coming in every month. And when that's the cash flow is coming in, it's very easy to spend and very no problem because you know, next month there's more cash coming in. You think, oh wait, I've been spending 150 grand a year for the last few years. And now I got a million in the bank and you start watching that tick away while you're trying to start another business, that is a very, very scary place to be. Yeah. And you know, what's crazy about it is by definition, you couldn't afford the own cash flow that you built, right? In the case of, uh, say you sell your business for a million bucks, that means you might be making 350 grand a year or whatever from that business. Now, if you go to empireflippers.com or brokerage out there or whatever, and you're like, I'd like to buy a business that I can earn $350,000 a year running, you can't afford it. You can't buy it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause you've got transaction fees in there. You've got taxes that you had to pay on that. Yes. It's a weird situation. So, and that's where it's back to the point here of trying to be very careful about those exits and being realistic about what that pile is going to mean for you and wh- what's next. And I think something really important there is you touched on it in a different episode was the, the push versus the pull. And if you have something else that you're already working on that you're really excited about and that maybe is already making money, and then that's your pull. And so then 
you have that all that pull that, oh, I got this other project that's doing really well, so I need to get rid of this one and, and have some some runway and that's fine and it's happening. But if it's all just pushed because you're sick of the business and now, great, you've got a million bucks in the bank and now you're twiddling your thumbs watching that pile go away, that's a very scary place to be. So that's where you, you got to be careful and kind of do the math on it. And I think this is where we can pull in the the fire guys. And and I think that using their 4% rule is at least like a, it's a nice way to take a rough guideline and say, okay, can I live off 4% of my pile? Like I can safely live off 4% of my pile. And it's like- So the 4% rule is essentially what? It basically means that if you just throw your money in the stock market, including fluctuations of the years, if you only withdraw 4% of that total pile, you should be able to live indefinitely off of your pile on that 4% without it going away. Versus my other example, you have a million dollars, you spend 150 grand a year, it's going to be gone in a couple of years. But if you spend 4%, which is 40 grand in that scenario, if you have the rest of it just in an index fund or something, you should come out okay and you won't burn all your money, even with market fluctuations over many years. I mean, I even think about, you know, okay, people say, well, why didn't you do that, Dan? Well, first off, I lit a bunch of it on fire because I wanted to have some fun. Yeah. <laughs> and and <laughs> I bought a bunch of crypto thanks to doing this podcast and meeting people like you and other smart people like Taylor Pearson and Jesse Lawler and people that are passionate about that. But then, you know, the reality, Jesse, is that I had to spend a bunch of it building another business. So I got a bunch of that money that we're talking about right now in dynamitejobs.com. And it wasn't cheap. Well, and the other thing is who wants to go from whatever you were paying yourself out of that business to now I'm retired and I make 40 grand a year. Like, wait, what? <laughs> like that, that wasn't me exiting off into the sunset and getting rich. You know, <laughs> it's a weird way that that works. So you got to be careful with it. Let me take a moment to talk about our recruiting services at Dynamite Jobs. If you're thinking about hiring, our team can help you be more strategic. If you're in the middle of a time-consuming candidate campaign, we can take it off your plate. And if your HR team is having difficulty delivering the right team members, we can be their support. See, strategy, positioning, promotion, filtering, interviewing, and assessing, they're all a tremendous amount of very important work, even for organizations with seasoned HR teams. But our expert team does it every day, all day. And it's not just our expertise you'll be accessing. We run one of the largest remote job boards and databases of qualified candidates on the web. Why not work directly with a team who hires hundreds of A players annually for businesses just like yours? So if you run a remote first company, we can help you grow faster and smarter. And the best part is we charge just one simple flat fee for every hire. And with Dynamite Jobs Recruiting, your results are guaranteed. To learn more about how we can help you grow, head on over to dynamitejobs.com and click on the Hire With Us link. And one of the themes of this show is like hacking this process. Because, okay, if you're thinking about becoming an entrepreneur and now you're saying, oh, I got to make $15 million in order to like have the sorts of freedoms I ultimately want, I think it's important to take a look at other dimensions of it that aren't just about cash currency. And you talk about things like influence. Your network is your net worth. So first, gaining back some time freedom so you can apply your time in dimensions that grow your, you could say happiness, which a lot of people are looking for, but also influence, skill set, knowledge, network. For example, if you become 
very famous on Twitter as a young person in their 20s. This is a, an accomplishment and an outcome that highly wealthy people can't just purchase necessarily. And so there are, we could say the caveat, great things in life often you can't buy. So for example, the respect of your peers or great relationships. But then there's like the next category of things, which are like, you can sometimes buy them, but they're also like really, really valuable. So that could be influence on social media is a very common one nowadays. It could be an extremely valuable skill set or set of knowledge. Wealthy people commonly will get together and bring in like a, a musician who is, is world-class or someone who even in entrepreneurial circles like ours will want to talk to young people who really know how to market influence on TikTok. Like, man, you have this skill set. Nobody cares how much money you have. Everybody wants to get to know you and be around you. And so if all this looks very intimidating, I think you know, this is just one dimension of a journey that's super multifaceted. And so I think that that theme of hacking this stuff is part of what this show is all about. It's like, why get the high stress job that pays 30,000 extra net a year when you can just get on a plane flight and get that result right away and start building back that time freedom right away. So I do think the stuff's very flexible. It's true. I mean, I even see a lot of people in our community and we all like to talk about the numbers a lot and it's really fun. And but yeah, the, the, what are you going to do when you get there? What are, what are the things that you want to do? And, and that's the, you know, is it the learning thing, enriching yourself? Is it making changes in the world? Is it, well, here's one that I think is an interesting topic is the, the generational wealth. I hear a lot of, a lot of our friends talk about that a lot. And I think from generations in the past and well, generations now, a lot of people, they just want their kids not to be poor, right? They want them to be able to live in a safe neighborhood and go to a nice school and, and, and these kind of things. But I think that a lot of people will project their pushing to gain tons of money because they want this generational wealth. They want their, their kids to have lots of money and this kind of thing. And I kind of tend to push back on that because I feel like there's one thing about making sure that your kids live in a safe place and, and have a nice school and have good opportunities and that kind of stuff. There's another thing about dumping 10 to $50 million on your kids and I think that, and especially if it's young, like if they grow up in a super wealthy situation, I always ask people about that. And I say, how many very wealthy kids do you know that you grew up with that you like think are great, that did something great with their life or, or whatever? And of course, sometimes it is, but a lot of times it's back to what we were talking about before the psychology of this. There's a lot of guilt that comes with that. There's a lot of bad things that come with rich kids, I think. It's a dangerous pursuit, I think, to essentially have a goal of spoiling your kids and putting them out of touch with the reality of the world. I think part of that is when you think of the typical Goldman Sachs banker in New York and that lifestyle, a lot of that success has to do with buying the fancy suits and having the status of all the things that go with that. Because in order to win in that part of the race, you need those things. It's part of the winning. It's part of getting to that next rung where since we're everything's on the internet, those things don't exist, you know? But where I'll push back is I'll say, actually, I feel like our community kind of forgets to do some of those fun things and is so used to bootstrapping their life away and living in cheap locations that they they forget to enjoy some of those things that were designed around why people do chase that money. And so I think that there's a balance there that can be reached. 
Well, Jesse, I think uh, we opened up the conversation, certainly not ended. Any parting shots you want to mention before we get off the call? I go back to, I'll mention the, the dream line originally from Timothy Ferris. I think it's really important that people revisit that and we can put a link down below. But writing out the things of why you want wealth. What are things you want to do? What are things you want to own? And what are the things you want to be? And really listing those out and then actually doing them. Otherwise, people, we just sit here like we did today and you just talk about the numbers, but you don't talk about a lot of people have different goals and that's fine. Maybe you do want to have a nice house in a, in a certain area as part of a, a life goal. Once you make that amount of money, do that. Or maybe you do want to learn salsa. Well, actually, once you get to that financial platform and you can afford it and you want those things, you got to actually do it. As humans, I think we're, we just keep double downing on the same routine. Even as us who have the freedom to not have our routine, we, we tend to just keep doing it. And it's like, instead of spending those three years with the private salsa tutor, we just say, well, no, how do I get from 10 million to a hundred million? And it's like, no, no, remember you wanted to get here so that you could learn salsa, not just so you could have a different number in your pile. So there is an optimism in, in the doubling down, which is essentially, I do think it's weird to do one thing to achieve another. And I think that that's actually the dissatisfaction that so many four hour work weekers had is like baked into the DNA of the book again. So it's like, you know, Tim is like, okay, well, you should build a business so you can do all this other stuff you want to do. And then you're going to get there and you're going to feel this void. And Tim's response to that, at least as much as a few years ago, was essentially, well, you just need to do the same process for your personal life, you know? <laughs> and I just think like there's kind of like a baked in pathology there, which is like, well, how about you just grow a business that you want to keep growing, you know? Because a business that's not growing is a business that's dying. And so I think that there's, an optimism in, in entrepreneurs that just get really into the entrepreneurial process and the levels that it inspires in us. Like at a certain point, Jesse, you know, you're building drop-in blog, which is becoming a, a meaningful source of income for your staff and your partners. And it's like, at a certain point, like that business starts to ask a lot from you and to require a better Jesse, you know, a higher level Jesse. And I think that there's a, there's a lot of power in that. And that's great. And, and I think that, you know, I'm personally enjoying that journey and, and I love business and I love the entrepreneurship as well. And that's one of the reasons we're here. I guess I just always like to throw out reminders to like, don't forget to do some of that cool stuff that you always wanted to do along the way. Because I just, I think that as a community, we, we forget about that too much. And I don't think I need to tell people that to keep hustling because we're addicted to that and we all keep doing that. And that's great. And that's fun and we like that. But just, yeah, don't forget to do some cool shit along the way. Do some cool things along the way. Heck yeah. Actually just got back from a, a real vacay. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah. Remember what those are? They, they're a thing. You can do them. And I'm feeling refreshed. It's September and, uh, you know, August is traditionally a pretty slow month in business. And I'm looking forward to an exciting, exciting September. Also, just want to mention, we appreciate your emails and voicemails to keep us inspired and inform the content on this show. That's it for this week. We'll see you next Thursday. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds 
of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.